welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we're off in search of the good life. I'm talking to Dr Emma Clausen, British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow in French at the University of Cambridge and Research Associate at Peterhouse College. Her current project asks what makes life worth living in early modern France, and it turns out that history and literature have a lot to teach those of us struggling with that very question today. 500 years ago, people knew all about plague, aimlessness and frustrated plans, and how to keep calm and carry on regardless. So, in the spirit of a modern renaissance, here's our attempt to get a grip on our lockdown languor. Good morning, Dr. Clausen. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Thank you very much indeed uh, for agreeing to meet me today in the centre of town, handily outside the most famous ice cream shop in town, and certainly the best, Jack's Gelato. I hope that wasn't the only reason you agreed to meet me. It was one reason. <laughs> okay. Well, the reason I wanted to start here, I guess, is because over the last 18 months, we've just got used to focusing on the small pleasures and the little things that punctuate the day because we've lost most of our big markers and so I thought as it's the August episode we ought to have an ice cream, a walk, just the two of us, that's all we can do outside and focus on these moments of connection that we've kind of clung to during the pandemic but you might be thinking that's possibly getting a little bit old and 18 months into this new normal we're not exactly delighted we're not exactly flourishing we're not totally depressed but we're doing something else what do you think it is um well one answer to that could be that we are languishing with all the different kinds of disappointments and boredom and small pleasures that that involves languishing is a bit of a buzzword at the moment yeah. isn't it tell me why well, there was an article in the New York Times um, popularising a theory by sociologist Corey Keyes, who um, coined this term languishing for the emotional and mental state that is between depression and thriving. And he calls it languishing. And the New York Times posited that it might be the dominant emotion of 2021, which was picked up in the UK press as well. So languishing as a state this pale grey state, neither total depression, but not exactly joy either. Appropriately enough for these pandemic times, it went a tiny bit viral. <laughs> yes. But your interest in languishing began well before the pandemic. What was it like having something that you were working on in a sort of serious research-based way suddenly become a media buzzword? Was that alarming? Was it good? Well, I think it was quite um, revitalising, ironically enough. 
I suppose you could say that my interest in languishing predates the pandemic in two ways. Firstly, I was working on it before the pandemic. Secondly, I'm working on it in a historical context in the early modern period, roughly between 1500 and 1650. So I was thinking about it very much as something in the past. So it was also quite, quite interesting to see it become a phenomenon of the present or be, be named as a phenomenon of the present as well. It's not generally advised to interview somebody when stuffing one's mouth with ice cream, but we're <laughs> going to give it a go in the interests of uh, scientific experiment and August small pleasures. Hi, what are you going to have, Emma? Could I please have mint stracciatella? A cone, please. Um, I would like apricot sorbet, I think. It's that kind of day. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Emma, is this your first taste of Jack's gelato? It sure is. What do you make of it? It's delicious. <laughs> I suppose you only arrived in Cambridge just before the pandemic, didn't you? So this is all you've ever known of Cambridge. Yeah, the first lockdown happened about six months after I started. So I was just getting settled in and then something changed quite dramatically. Yeah. I mean, I still have had a pretty good experience, actually. It's been difficult and it's been a bit sad not to be able to make the most of Cambridge, which which I'm told is a great place. <laughs> I've barely, barely been here, really. I think I've met fewer people, but I think I've probably talked a bit more in some ways to, to the people that I do know. So you're new to Cambridge. You came from Oxford University prior mm -hmm. to that. Did you always know you wanted an academic life? Not really. I think I've just kind of gone step to step. So I always know I want to do the next two or three years, but I don't really tend to think of life in that kind of grand sense, a whole life, a whole career, a whole vocation. I think that part of my interest in researching how people understand lives and understand their life narratives comes from a certain ambivalence about my own life narrative, actually. Where did the interest in, in French and French literature come from? Was that, did that develop quite young at school or was it a, a later lightning bolt? How did it work for you? Well, I didn't study any French literature at school, actually. Really? But I really, yeah, no, no, um, I think there were some curriculum reforms that made it more about like practical um, language skills and grammar. I remember my GCSE oral was about selling a conservatory over the phone <laughs> in, in French. So that set yeah. you up nicely for a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I absolutely loved the language. I loved the sounds of the words. I was fascinated by the grammar. I think I really enjoyed just the process of learning how to say things differently. And also I loved English. I loved English literature. So. Ultimately, studying literature in French felt very natural and like my ideal scenario. But I studied um, French and history okay. at university, yeah. And that's now kind of converged for yeah. you in your thought lines and you're studying this early modern period, yeah, which exactly. remind me the exact dates of what we call early modern. Well, it depends. And it depends in which country. For France, the early modern period is about 1500 to 1800. And what you're saying is that actually we were languishing back then as well. This is not a new thing. It might have been coined relatively recently, as you say, in 2002 by this American sociologist, but actually they were languishing in the early moderns. Yeah, I think that they've defined it a little bit differently um, and they didn't have the same concept of mental health that, that we have now. But yeah, absolutely. I think that one might argue that they were languishing more. Yeah, so it was probably quite a tough gig being alive in the early modern period. If we can unpack the word languir in French, what does, what does that mean? 
both in the language and in a, in a Renaissance context. If someone says, I'm suffering from that complaint, what would they mean? Well, the verb languir means to suffer physically. It means to kind of waste away. Okay. <laughs> or to die slowly. But it's also associated with um, being in love, kind of lovesickness. And also you find it used in particular descriptions of types of death. So in the love context, sighing and dying and burning for, for this inaccessible beloved. So it kind of has the context of a slow burn as well, you might say. Goodness. Well, that is quite yeah. different from what we are talking about in 2021, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of endurance is common to both. So often when writers talk about languishing, even if languishing and languor might be slightly different, they talk about it as a kind of slow experience of time and of living in a less than ideal state, wanting things that you can't necessarily have. So maybe now we're languishing because we want to go outside, we want to see our friends. So it's about love, but it's also about kind of those experiences of being human when, when they're writing about languishing, I think. The definition by Corey Keyes is sociological and kind of diagnostic. That's the modern one. Yeah, that's the way it's being used in, in that kind of viral context. Yes. Um, whereas when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it in literature, and I'm thinking about it as a kind of poetic social phenomenon. It's something that people do, something that texts do. I notice you've very skillfully, practically finished your ice cream. <laughs> yeah. I haven't quite managed to eat much of mine, but let's go back to your <laughs> college. Greedy. And uh, you can tell me some more about that. How does that sound? Emma, we're back in Peterhouse College now, which is, of course, your college, and miraculously unsticky after that ice cream. Um, I feel much more cheerful, and I'm interested to move the conversation on a little bit. You know, your work on languishing is part of a wider interest in what does it mean to live a good life. So where did that interest come from for you? Well, I think the question is also what does it mean what does it mean to live at all? Um, how is life conceptualised? Is, is life understood as a biological or natural phenomenon or as something that is kind of more abstract and has a narrative attached to it? And between those things, how can it be good? How can it be physically comfortable? How can it be morally acceptable? How can it be pleasurable? I suppose I'm interested in those questions because writers in the period are so interested in those questions. Partly as a long tradition going back into the medieval and classical periods about what it means to live well, who you're living well for, what kind of mortal existence is possible. But I think I'm also interested in it because the question is asked in compelling ways by the writers I study. And I think it also comes out of an interest in politics, which we might talk a bit more about later, um, because the management of life and the production of a good life is kind of a really political question I think then and now. So somebody who's fairly central to you starting thinking about this I think is Etienne de la Boissie. Tell me mm -hmm. about him and what was he writing? He is I suppose a relatively minor literary figure of the 16th century in France although I suppose for specialists he's very he's very central. 
Um, he's best known as being the friend of the essayist Montaigne and the inspiration, really, for that writer's essay project because grief at La Boissy's death prompted Montaigne to, to write and he writes a very famous chapter about their friendship. But La Boissy was also a writer. He was a translator of classical texts. He wrote poems. And his work that he is best known for is called The Discours de la Servitude Volontaire, or it's a discourse on voluntary servitude. So it's a treatise about freedom and tyranny. So what's his main point in that? To be free, you have to want to be free. And the, the activation of the will is a kind of primary gesture of liberation. So... And so he's identifying this problem that he sees as voluntary servitude. So, so the reason that tyrants have power is essentially because people give it to them. I see. So what's his solution? Well, the solution is just, you know, for the people to wake up. I think it's, the, you think of a text like the, the Communist Manifesto, like you like rise up, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Cela est-ce vivre heureusement Cela s'appelle-t-il vivre Quelle condition est plus misérable que de vivre ainsi, qu'on n'ait rien à soi, tenant d'autrui son aise, sa liberté, son corps et sa vie Is this living happily Can we call this living What condition is more miserable than living thus, without anything of one's own, holding from another one's comfort freedom, body and life. In the Discours de la Servitude Volontaire, he's trying to persuade the reader to want to be free and the key theme of his attempt to that, uh, that, of that persuasive effort is saying that you're not really alive if you're, if you're not free. So he describes somebody living in servitude and then he says, is this living? Can you even call this living? Is there anything more miserable than living when you have no autonomy? I see. So it's a call to action, really. Yeah, definitely. But he, I think he's not suggesting that it'll just happen, you have to still fight for it. But I suppose he's saying that as soon as you want to fight for it, then, that, then, it's gonna come, then freedom will come. But... I think that is so provocative in an abstract context where, and, and, and also in a context where you're thinking about slavery as an institution which is developing from this period in a colonial context. But La Boissy is also thinking about power dynamics on a more local and more nuanced scale. So he's thinking about the relationship, for example, between the courtiers and the king and how these courtiers are all kind of voluntarily subordinating themselves for a tyrant. And it's also a way of thinking about love and friendship i think that complicates the question of whether people really want to be free or how, and how to manage the the ties of obligation that that come from attachment to others so the idea of being kind of voluntarily enslaved to the person that you love so you can understand it in multiple ways i'm getting the sense that lavoisi wouldn't have been a languisher he wouldn't be lying on the sofa wondering what to do. He'd be getting everyone baking the sourdough and running around, don't you think? <laughs> Casting off their shackles. Well, he seems to have lived a very active life in his, in his lifetime. 
And I suppose his treatise is kind of anti-languishing. If, you, if you're aware that that's what you're doing, then that ought to spur you to a more flourishing existence. So, yeah, I suppose so. And reading him got you started to think, well, what was anyone else saying about the good life? But you also make the point, I think, in one of the articles, you say to live a good life in the Renaissance, you had to survive it. And that's a really interesting point because, you know, in a way, it's a bit of a luxury to be able to think about the good life. The peasants weren't thinking about the good life unless they were actually literally languishing. In other words, being on death's door. So is it an intellectual pose? Mm. That is a really good question. And it is one that I, I think about a lot. I don't think we can know that the peasants weren't thinking about these issues or that they wouldn't have encountered them. So I think that literature and ideas are circulating in multiple forms. They might not have been able to read and write that we know of, but they might have been hearing discussions of these questions. But certainly it is a luxury in a way. I don't think it should be, but it is a luxury to be able to think about whether you're living a good enough life once you're living at all. And I think the mortality rates in the period speak for themselves. Yeah, I mean, when I started reading a little bit about Laboisi and the other people that you talk about in your papers um, who are thinking about the good life, my mind immediately turned to Hamlet. You know, Shakespeare sets him up exactly in this period. 1603, he hears Hamlet striding onto the stage and says, how weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. So he's bang on in Act 1 saying, gosh, it's all so boring, don't know what to do, bit fed up with everything, I'm languishing. And in a certain way that Shakespeare's saying to us, this is someone who's living an intellectual life, this is not a worker. That kind of relates to the theme of the contemplative life, which is one model of the good life, which is all about thinking. The kind of cliche of it would be the ivory tower. Right. The ivory tower existence that maybe Hamlet is, you know, one interpretation of Hamlet is that that's, that's his problem. That he thinks too much. Yeah, yeah. And then that, that causes languishing. Absolutely. And I've seen other discussions about languishing and melancholy, particularly, and boredom and stopping for a minute, stopping time, letting go of your control of time, which, of course, we've all had to learn how to do in the last 18 months, actually, as being a route to creativity. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I wonder if people in the early modern period thought that. Certainly melancholy is associated with with creativity, kind of poetic fury. A lot of writers discuss that. But in terms of languishing, it's a kind of corollary of creative efforts. Perhaps it also inspires writing in the sense that that's something that you can do while you're languishing for want of better, for want of the possibility of action. So reading and writing is not just a way to pass the time, but it's a way of keeping people close in whatever way you can while we're blocked where we are. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can see that as something that is produced by all different kinds of distance. So geographic distance, emotional distance, sometimes the distance of loss, you know, so somebody's not here anymore. Um, All of these things are present, I think, when, when writers are writing about languishing. And also the writer finds that they can live on and it's not ideal. And yet they are surviving somehow the loss or the distance or the disappointment that they are encountering in their attempt to connect with another human. 
you've actually had a pretty good lockdown because you've been one of those tremendously productive people that has brought out a book <laughs> while the rest of us have been languishing in our leisure wear. You've brought out a book called Politics and Politique in 16th Century France, a conceptual history. And that came out actually only a few weeks ago. Congratulations Thank with um, Cambridge University Press. What was it like doing that work and launching it into the world in a pandemic when there was nobody to have the conversations with and to receive it and to be there and share it with you? The first thing to say is that the academic publication process is very slow. So I had finished most of it actually before the lockdown, but it just took another uh, more than a year to go through the production and copy editing process. So the thinking work happened before and I don't know if I could have done it under the pressures or the lack of stimulation that lockdown led to. Although the lockdown also helped with with all these things being cancelled it meant that I could focus on ticking off all the last tasks of the book and in particular it must have been pretty amazing for you going through those proofs those final checks talking about life in times of crisis which of course early modern France really really was Mm. when our own crisis is raging outside did you find that cast fresh ideas into what you were thinking about academically. I think it made everything feel different. Even if I didn't necessarily write differently, as far as I can tell, especially especially in the book where I had a bit less wiggle room in terms of how, I, how much I could change it by the time the pandemic was really in full swing. But I think it made me more sympathetic to the writers that I was studying. Not that I felt particularly hard on them before, but... So something about the way that they had to respond ad hoc to change on a weekly, daily, monthly basis, having to change their mind about what they thought was right or having to make all kinds of contingency plans that often seemed, you know, from a distance of 500 years, quite absurd. You know, you could understand a little bit more when, you, when, when you're a part of a society going through that process. Another thing is that, as I think a lot of historians have talked about, this was a time of plague, as well as of war and social instability. So going through our own plague definitely made that aspect of early modern experience seem different. And of course, La Boissie himself, he died in his early 30s. You know, he was writing against the clock. There was very much a sense in people's lives at that time that, you know, tomorrow was not a given. I suppose the urgency that they lived with also feels more salient you know, I'm also in my early 30s, you know, um, and actually just before the first lockdown, one of my friends died um, at a similar age to Le Boissy. So I think that that combination of events really transformed my sense of the project that I'm doing now and my sense of languishing, actually, because I had been thinking about it in such an abstract way and also I had been quite impatient with it and I really was thinking about it in more on the on the end of bathos you know rather than pathos I think especially because it's quite cliched and repetitive and there's so many different poems and I kind of characterize them in my mind as whinging um these love poems these languishing love poems yeah exactly and and also the representations of languishing in prose texts by Montaigne and La Boissie I think the mixture of repetition and self-awareness and irony coexists in these texts that I suppose is a kind of defense against the sadness that is underlying these kinds of languishing and those I think because of 
what we were all experiencing and what I was experiencing. I had a, a new view of that in the spring of 2020. I'm so sorry to hear about your friend and Thanks. trying to do serious work at the same time as being paralysed by grief is an experience that many people will have shared this year. Mm-hmm. Did you find comfort in any of the approaches to life among your writers did you find that they had a kind of playbook for how to get through this time and how to deal with these feelings I think that what I found helpful was all the different ways in which writers describe living when life can't be good and yet they go on you know, and uh, when expectations are thwarted and time feels elastic and you can't get what you want, I found that quite moving. And I think there's also a sense in which they're all reading and writing to cope with how difficult life is. And I suppose they're retreating into dreams and fantasies about what good life could be. It's a big theme, isn't it? The consolations of literature. I wouldn't say I found it directly consoling but I did find it distracting and the pleasures of reading were still available. Connecting out then from a focus on politics to your current research on the good life and what makes life worth living even in difficult circumstances is there any overlap between those two themes was there a bridge from one to the other for you and if so where was it? Oh yeah absolutely I think firstly in classical theory the good life is supposed to be the outcome of politics. I think Aristotle says that quite clearly. But in the text that I look at, there's lots of phrases like manière de vivre, um, façon de vivre, as the kind of the object of political discussion, so ways of life, um, habits, manners of living. And I started you know, making lists. I think that's the way that textual research kind of happens and proliferates, is that you notice phrases, phrases that keep coming back, themes and motifs. So it was something that I was taking stock of in a quite literal sense while I was working on my my PhD topic which is what became my book and um, and then it was really reading La Boissie. If we talk about the academic life for a minute what are the best bits about this lifestyle for you what keeps you doing it? There are lots of really great things about about this life for all its difficulties I would say that my favorite thing is coming across something that I'm looking for or even that's unexpected in a text that that I can use to make a connection with another text or that makes the penny drop about the answer to a question that I have for instance you know what is life called when it's not great <laughs> you know these, these really exciting moments of discovery are very motivating another great thing is finding criticism you know um, as in literary criticism that explores adjacent or, or or even the same questions it feels like it can be a really beautiful conversation across you know decades and centuries about questions that capture various people in different contexts I find that really exciting and on that note you know it's conversations like shared enthusiasms are a real joy to discover conversations like this one in a way
Emma, if we kind of loop back for a minute and return to the idea of languishing as a, as a viral phenomenon of yeah. 2021, um, it's what the writer in the New York Times, Adam Grant, who's a psychologist, called languishing the neglected middle child of mental health. One of the people that picked up and wrote about it was um, Eva Wiseman writing in The Guardian over here, which made me laugh a lot. And one of the things she said was, so here we are languishing like unmarried women in A-level novels. We are condescending about the washing. We are tearful at the bad tea. And she concludes that the idea of a liminal space in which to feel weird, sad, and slightly mad, as she puts it, I adore and identify with. And I thought that was great because in a way, by naming it as a phenomenon that so many of us were suffering, there was an idea that we weren't all on our own. And I was wondering, in your own work, is it an individual thing or is it a common thing, some of these ideas that were swirling around? One of the grand narratives about the early modern period is it's the age of the emergence of the individual. Um, I think that's a little bit outdated now in some ways, but it does feel nonetheless as though in terms of, in terms of literature, you find more of the first person, more of the internal narrative. And in line with that, there is a sense in some ways that languishing is an individual experience and an experience that is of isolation and the languishing subject is reaching out and not managing to connect however the writers in question also know that they're repeating a trope so that they know that they're writing almost the same thing as what somebody else has written they're using a similar phrase they're using a similar image they know that they're all in it together what i love about the eva wiseman piece as well is that she says she loves it there are possibilities in languishing and that there are pleasures in it as well i think that comes through very much in, in the early modern writing too. I think that's also political. I was interested that the implication in the New York Times piece was that we should really prefer to be flourishing yes, and living our best lives and being productive. And I think one of their follow-up pieces was tips to flourish more, you know, five, five ways to flourish. Um, I found those rather exhausting about halfway through 2020. I, was, I wasn't ready to flourish at yeah, that point. Yeah, it's a kind of capitalist ethic, right? Never take your pedal off the productivity machine. And in terms of expectations, early modern writers certainly wouldn't think that they would always be flourishing, even though flourishing is also something that they think about. I think the good life is kind of fantasy that they're projecting forward to rather than that they really claim to be living. Essentially, isn't languishing just a very, very sensible thing to do when life gets overwhelming? I mean, it's a kind of self-preservation in a way. It's a survival, you know, hide under the duvet until it all gets better. Yeah, it's strategic. It's waiting it out. (laughs) You've spoken in one of the articles that, that I've read that, you know, in terms of the academic life, as an early career researcher such as you are, there is a huge pressure not to languish. You're meant to be vital and relevant and productive and flourishing no matter what. Do you think that expectation is just too much and actually stifles the creativity and the joys of an academic life? Of course it's too much. It's, it's farcical, really. Um, I mean, this is a controversial topic. I think that we can be too negative about what it's like to be an early career scholar in a way that is not enabling for us. However, the pressure to be productive is is counterproductive. How do you cope with that pressure? 
I mean, the honest answer is probably by not taking it that seriously. I don't know. I think I'm subject to all the same pressures and concerns as everybody else. And I don't think I'm handling it better than any other person. But I think that knowing that this this idea that every single day you're going to leap out of bed and write another article um, is a silly one is is helpful in the resistance but you know also I do I do want to write I do want you know I want to be having this conversation I'm I want my book to come out I, th- I just think that those things come out of a mixture of flourishing and languishing and I don't think that pretending to be super energetic all the time will help me and some people don't genuinely are though you know I think it's a, a, in terms of the the distribution of energy I think everybody has a different arc Absolutely, that some things will take time, Mm. some people will be quieter, some people will languish and then flourish and languish and flourish in their own way. And maybe some people always languish and they're still doing great things and I don't know, that it's still valuable. Indeed. You talked earlier, Emma, about discovering Etienne de la Boissy and reading this relatively slender volume from him, which sent you on a whole new direction. But as you say, he wasn't a particularly well-known writer. You're kind of giving him a bit of a renaissance of his own. In as terms- are others, yeah. <laughs> but is there a sense that books and ideas can languish, not just people, that there's, a, there's periods of fallowness where not many people are engaging with them and then suddenly their time comes again? Yeah, I'm really interested in that idea. So because languishing is about time, the way it's represented is also about narrative and certain narratives are attached to different books, right? So in the reception history of any text, there are going to be moments of vitality and languishing. And I think that's absolutely true for Renaissance writers, including La Boissie, who, yeah, I think it's not just me. I think that quite a lot of people are very interested in him at the moment. So I think we can think of texts as languishing in terms of in their reception, but we can also think of languishing as a form, if that makes sense. So if it's a narrative, what is the structure of that narrative within a text? You take a text like Montaigne's Essay, which is a really long, proliferating piece of writing that is sort of about survival and endurance and mitigating unhappiness. That form... Can that be described as, as, as languishing? Because it's so drawn out, you mean? Yeah, because of its pace, because of the mood. I think that's a big question. That's one of the questions I want to think about in, in, in my book that I haven't written yet, so we'll see. Um, so, yeah, so whether there are languishing forms and whether languishing is a, is a renaissance form, those are questions I'm, I'm really interested in. And, and I suppose that one of the motivations for this project is thinking about how human life and literary life converge and maybe languishing is a crux of that. Maybe it's a point of access, you know, for thinking about how human life and textual life are connected. As you were speaking there, Emma, I was immediately thinking of, you know, the Arabian Nights cycle. (laughs) As long as you're telling a story, you're staving off death. As long as you keep talking and keep narrating, the morning will not come. Absolutely, absolutely. And also the, the dream that you're nurturing can stay alive, you know, in, in the poems. The, the dream of connection isn't over because you keep writing. Going back to that New York Times article, of course, which keeps being referenced here, which we keep jumping off from, but in that very busy, as you signal, uh, New York Times sort of way, um, 
they're quite keen to end by telling you how to get out of languishing. And apparently, the opposite of languishing is flow. Now, flow is when we lose ourselves and we're doing something positive and constructive and we forget that time's passing, that we're bored, etc., that we're still stuck in our homes. So we need to achieve these states of flow. And the way we get to it, the psychologist Adam Grant feels, is to start with the small wins. So, right. Like an ice cream. Exactly right. That ice cream today. Emma was our small win, okay? <laughs> and he also advises, you'll be pleased to know, carving out daily time for a challenge that means something to you. And that can be an interesting project or a meaningful conversation. So we're winning on all fronts here. You know, we have beaten languishing just by being here today together. Oh, excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Emma Clausen, for joining me here today on Thoughtlines. Thank you for having me. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thank you.